Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to another Financial Times Management Blog audio interview. My name's Adam Jones. I'm here with Professor Peter Killing, a professor at IMD, the Swiss Business School, and we're here to talk about strategy, and in particular, how companies can choose uh, what their must-win battles are. And this is really the definition uh, that Professor Killing has for the, the, the strategic priorities for the organization. Now, Professor Killing, um, you believe that companies in general have far too many um, strategic priorities, and, and what they need to do is really refine these down to uh, three or five uh, manageable priorities. Um, why, three or, why three to five, and how does one start to do that? Well, one of the joys of working at a business school is you get to meet managers from a wide variety of companies. And it's not so much us, the professors. By the way, there were two of us involved in this work, Professor Tom Malnight and myself. And what we found from the many managers that we worked with was virtually all of them said they had too many priorities. And even if we're just having a chat over a coffee and say, well, you know, what's going on in your business? They'd say, we're trying to do too much. And because we're trying to do too much, we don't do anything particularly well. So we spread our resources too thin. We do everything okay, but not really truly well. And as a result, we lose on some of those priority areas where we should be winning simply because we didn't put enough resources behind them. And that got us interested in this whole approach of helping companies reduce the number of battles that they're trying to fight, the number of fronts on which they're trying to move forward. And it's hit quite a receptive chord. Uh, Starting maybe five years ago, we started running workshops for companies to do this. And after we'd been working with them for about three years, uh, we wrote a book called Must Win Battles, capturing some of those experiences that we had gained from running usually three- to five-day off-site sessions with top management teams of, say, 12 to 15 or 16 people. And these might have been the people who were running the whole company, or they might have been running a division within the company. And as you mentioned in the beginning, normally we would agree with the boss, the CEO perhaps, that three to five would be sufficient And if we could agree, we meaning the management team, if we could agree on three to five and really put our energy behind them, that would be a major step forward for the organization. And if that sounds like rather a simplistic uh, number, three to five, the way that typically arranges itself is, is there's kind of a headline battle, like defend the core or the battle for China. We're seeing a lot of companies these days where the battle for China is at the top of their list. But under that major heading of the battle for China, there's usually a couple of sub-battles that might be about developing new products for the Chinese market. They're going to be less expensive, simpler to make. Uh, There may be a battle about setting an export base in China where you're going to use that as your source and come back into the rest of the world. So the battle for China, while that would be one of your three to five, 
really contains a number of sub-battles captured within it. And that's normally the way these battles end up being framed. So to come back to the question of how do you actually get there, what you need to realize is that this process of narrowing down a list of potentially all important priorities is both an emotional process and a rational process. So we can all have very good arguments about why battle A is more important than battle B, but that is going to be partly based on logic, numbers, market shares, projections, costs, etc. But there is going to be a lot of emotion around the table because I was involved in creating this battle. I've done the work. My team will be disappointed if this isn't one of the three to five, and I'm going to have to leave after this offsite and explain to my guys why we're not on the top list. So when I say it's an emotional battle, um, that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it's not the CEO sitting in his or her office alone and saying, well, I can do this. Here's the five. Why don't I just write them out and send out the email? Um, you have to work people through the process because it is vital that everyone remains committed or becomes committed to that small set of battles. You can't have somebody going back and saying, well, guys, we lost. Mm-hmm. So um, how do you structure that kind of workshop? We talk about an off-site um, to minimize the, um, the avoidable friction that would stop people from reaching that kind of statement of common purpose. I mean, how many people should you take out there? Um, what kind of conditions should it be? It should be completely remote? Should you be cut off from all forms of um, communication with the mothership? We make it as, um, we make it as remote as we can. Um, I've run them myself in places as diverse as um, the northern woods of Finland in kind of Finnish uh, fishing cabins, very basic accommodation. Also on the west coast of Vancouver Island where we had to fly in by float planes there were about 15 of us, but um, in the Middle East, we've done it in five-star hotels. The key is to get away from head office and get away from any specific location that any of the participants actually operate. And once you get people there, and normally, yes, I mean, we, ha- we have done them with as many as 40 people. My personal preference is 10 to 15. It's a trade-off. You want a diversity of opinion, so you want people around the room who are coming from different parts of the company but you want a small enough group that you can arrive at a conclusion into which everyone is buying in, and at the end you can say, are you on board one at a time, and have people make personal commitments to these. In terms of getting people to think about the whole of the organization, I mean, understand that when I say there's an emotional commitment, it stems from the fact that I'm the guy who runs new product development, and you're the guy who runs China or India or whatever it is, and we each logically have a different focus inside the business. So typically where we we start with two pretty basic questions. One is, do we agree where we are today as an organization? Do we agree with the challenges we face, how strong our financial health is, whether we're on the verge of a crisis and so on? So do we agree on today? And then the second exercise is, do we agree on where we want to be tomorrow? Tomorrow could be five years away. We we try and push people beyond their immediate concerns. In other words, beyond the next 12 months for sure. And we'd like to go to about five. So if we can agree where we are today, 
and agree where we want to get to, then the must-win battles are the battles that we have to decide upon that we need to win to take us from today to that future that we want. So with that as kind of a framing, we're getting people to think about the whole of the organization, not just their piece. You are leading this business. You're not just leading R&D. Yeah. And um, what are the criteria uh, upon which one can identify these must-win battles, these three to five strategic priorities? Yeah, typically we would have criteria pasted on the wall just to remind people of the techniques, uh, the arguments that we're going to use to shorten this list. First of all, a must-win battle has to have general impact. It has to make a difference. And so you can, say, you can ask questions like, what would be the implication if we lost this battle? And sometimes people are a little hard-pressed to come up with a really convincing answer to that. So the scope of the impact, the, the size of the impact is the first issue. So in other words, it can't just be something out of my backyard as one of the participants. It has to be affecting the whole organization. The second criterion is that the battles need to be market-based. It's about winning in your marketplace. So battles for market share, battles to get costs down, which will allow us to be more competitive, are quite prevalent. What we try and avoid, well, what we insist on avoiding is a series of must-win battles which are about winning the transfer price competition inside our organization or winning the battles for scarce talent, whatever that might be, engineers. So we want... Those internal battles. Exactly. You want to avoid that. Um, You want the battles to be aspirational. The battles should not be about maintaining the status quo normally. You're trying to get people to, to do something beyond everyday normal work. And the battles need to be tangible. And by that, what I mean is if you can't actually put some key performance indicators against the battle, you're going to have a tough time monitoring your progress towards success in that battle. So whether it's a circulation number, a market share number, a cost-related number, a headcount number, whatever it is, you need to be able to make the battle quite tangible. And finally... And this is a bit of a balancing act. I've said it needs to be aspirational, but it also needs to be winnable. You don't want to be in a situation where you're capturing everyone's pipe dreams, fantasies, and then directing the organization towards it. So it's a bit of a reality check as you're going through that. Okay. Um, And what uh, tips can you give to people organizing these kinds of workshops to minimize the friction between various departments? I mean, how can you... Uh, really uh, avoid that sort of unnecessary conflict? Well, the first thing to do is think about the types of conversations and debates you're likely to have, okay? So you might, uh, if you're pretty sure that a lot of this conversation is going to be about China, just to take an example, and you know that half the people in the room don't know very much about China at all, then portraits of competitors, portraits of the Chinese market, whatever data your guys who are running China actually already have, bring it in, print it, post it on the walls. So the first thing you need is that people are walking, working from a common database. That is, that is essential if you want everybody to think about the good of the firm. The other thing I, I should mention is you don't always want to avoid conflict. Okay, Nearly always in an event like this, Um, there will be a crisis, I mean an interpersonal crisis. And being a good CEO 
you can usually anticipate it in advance. You know where the fight's going to be, and you might even know what it's going to be about. And typically, good managers have techniques for derailing those, getting them offline, smoothing them out. My advice would be don't. Let it happen. We often find, let, you know, let's say you're running a four-day four uh, workshop from Monday to Thursday. About Tuesday night, the crisis, you know, you can feel the friction building between two guys. And let it happen because that's when you have the breakthrough. And you start to have the real conversations where people are saying what they really think and they really believe. Because if you don't get people to the stage where they're having honest conversations, it can be a sham. And what the last thing you want is false must-win battles and everybody goes back to their teams and says, oh, don't worry, guys, this will pass over too. Uh, you want genuine commitment at the top table. So in that sense, let the crisis happen. And one final question. Um, one of the difficulties for all organizations having these kinds of uh, workshops and uh, external help is actually executing um, when you get back to the office, when the torrent of unanswered emails uh, swamps you and you have that challenge of breaking out of the old forms of behavior. Uh, how does one actually embed that kind of change? It's an excellent question because this is the most difficult part. Um, running the workshop, if you've got a committed CEO uh, who is skillful, 90% of the time the workshop will arrive at the desired results, pretty much. Uh, and then the challenge is what to do when you're back, no question. First thing you need to do is everybody will be skeptically wondering what the hell have they been doing this time while they're off-site for four days, top management, guaranteed to bring out every organizational cynic around. Uh, and be prepared to ignore it. So first issue is communication, okay? Uh, some of the most effective things I've seen are the top team or a good selection of it, let's say eight or ten people, sitting on a dais in a large room with 80 to 100 to 150 people in the room saying, together and publicly, here's what we did last week, guys. Here's the journey we went through. Here are even the debates we had. Here are the things we argued about. And here were the different sides of the argument. And here's the choice we made. And here's why we made that choice. So you know. I mean, it's in the open. And here's where we came out. And this is what we're going to do now. So, and then maybe 20 minutes, half an hour of presentation, followed by, you know, the town hall meeting, questions from the floor, people who are, in some cases, completely surprised, outraged, shocked. How could we possibly do that? And what about my pet project? Where is it? And so they get the explanation live in real time. And one of the people sitting on the stage is their own boss or their boss's boss, together with the CEOs and the others. And they are seeing the alignment between those people and they're hearing it. So a visible public display. There was a group in Mexico doing this, and they did it on January the 2nd, which means on New Year's Day, everyone had to travel. It was a remote location in the mountains. It was cold as hell. And one of the messages was these guys, these, this was a crisis situation in this company. They said, if you guys get your act together, next year we're going to Guadalajara, back to the beach and back to the warmth. But they ran... Uh, 15, my memory might be a little hazy, but they ran 15 live similar events in the first quarter of the year. All 15,000 people knew what their four must-win battles were, why they'd been chosen, what was going to happen. And from then on, it just rolled out. So there were KPIs, there were leadership teams for each. They ended up reorganizing the organization around the must-win battles. There was no way people were going to forget. And ultimately, people got paid 
on the success of the Mustman battles. So that's how it evolved from a small group to the whole workforce knowing about this, even the guys you know, packing the products into boxes on the shop floor. Professor Peter Killing, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been very enjoyable talking about this. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.